Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, my guest is Seema Kumar. She is the CMO at New Relic. New Relic is one of these brands I've always admired. Whether we think what they do is key to us or not, they've had a strong brand and the way they go to market is so informative. And we get to talk about their content strategy today and Seema's beliefs in general on the role of content to really be educational versus throwing our brand and its purpose or trying to gear that content to our purpose. We've got to educate, we've got to help marketers understand the role of our organization and more so their role in their organization. She gives us some great tips there, including her path to the CMO role and how she managed to balance being patient but also pouncing on these opportunities when they're given and really seizing them to have your career get to that next level. I know you're gonna enjoy it. So without further ado, my chat with Seema Kumar. Seema, thank you so much for stopping in. I'm excited to hear how you landed this opportunity at New Relic, such an amazing brand. What's it like to be the CMO there? Hi, Randy. It is such an incredible brand, isn't it? And that was actually one of the primary things that really drew me into New Relic when I started chatting with them. You know, the way that I um, I landed this opportunity at New Relic, I would say is, is a few things. So first of all, um, it's taking a long-term view of relationships. There were some relationships I had developed early on and things might not have been the right fit at that time, but I took a view of, hey, stay close, stay connected. You never know what's going to happen. And then when the time was right for them and the time was right for me, they reached out and it just worked out. A second thing I would say is that a lot of this comes down to my prior experience. I've had a habit of just saying yes when new opportunities arose. There have been so many times in my career where I thought, I don't know what I'm going to do next. When is the next chapter going to come? And then lo and behold, something would just show up and it didn't look like the right next step, maybe right away, but I was willing to say yes. A friend of mine says, when the door is open, just walk through it. And I believe in doing that. And so I did that and it created this amazing experience for me where I understand developers, I've marketed to a technical audience, I've done sales-led and product-led. And so when New Relic came knocking, I had all of the experience they were looking for, not because I set out you know, to design it that way, but it just so happened. And then the third thing I'll say, and I think you talk about this in some of your other episodes, is that a lot of this comes down to luck. I am more than happy and willing to embrace luck and acknowledge the role that luck has played in my life. I am not going to say that I created it and designed it to be this way, but I will also end by saying the harder I work, the luckier I get. That's so, that's so well put. I want to go back though to your point is you got to wait for that right opportunity to present itself and then you got to seize it. But you spent, you know, for people who don't know, almost eight years at Salesforce. And I can only imagine that with that brand behind you, you must have had quite a few opportunities thrown your way, you know, especially, you know, living in a world, you know, where, where every tech company is looking for some of that knowledge from a company like Salesforce. 
How did you know it was the right time to leave? Like, was it wait for a CMO gig? Was it wait for a certain sector? How did you make that decision? Yeah, that's great, Randy. You know, I am primarily motivated by learning and growth. At the end of the day, I want to be learning and growing every day. And if I am, I feel fulfilled. That's what fills my bucket. And for the eight years I was at Salesforce, I had a number of different roles and opportunities during those eight years. I worked on two different businesses at the company. And with each one of those roles and those different businesses, I was continually learning. And I was learning from some of the best and brightest in the industry, obviously. And I just hit a point where I realized I wasn't learning anymore. I had just had my second child and I was going to come back from maternity leave. And I had so many people who said to me, you know, Seema, you could come back and it wouldn't be that hard. You have a great brand in the company. You have a great network. You know how to get things done. You know the Salesforce way. This feels like the time in your life to just sort of optimize for that, right? And for me, unfortunately, I'm I'm not wired that way. I need to continually be learning and growing, contributing. And I didn't see that happening for you know, going forward after those eight years. And so that was how I knew that it was time for me to go find a new opportunity. That's great. It's it's listen, it takes patience though, to your point. And then also realizing and not letting those eight years turn into 11 years or 12 years. It's it's a very careful balance there. What has been different for you? You're now a second time CMO. And, and I'm mm-hmm. curious what's different the second time around. Do you, do you go in more confident? Did you pick with different criteria in mind? That is such an excellent question, Randy. Yeah, a lot is different. You know, the first time that you go into a new CMO role, you're spending a lot of time thinking, can I really do this? And you know, whatever part of marketing you come up through, whether it's brand or demand or product marketing, you're like, okay, I can do that part, but can I do these other parts? And you've got a lot of, you know, or at least I had a lot of imposter syndrome wondering if I could do it. So one thing that's different the second time around is having a lot more confidence because you've done it before. You've, you know, you've hired all these different vendors, you've managed the overall marketing budget, you've gone through a planning cycle, and you just show up um, with a great deal more confidence in your own ability to make decisions, to execute, to lead, to build a strategy. The second thing I'll say that's different is the first time I focused a lot on building the best marketing team and the best marketing function, the best marketing strategy that I could. I focused on my division down. The second time around, because I knew when I looked at the marketing org, I was like, oh yeah, I got this, no problem. I raised my gaze and I focused more on my relationships with my peers at the company. So if you've ever read a book called The Five Dysfunctions of Team, there's this notion of team one versus team two. Team one is your peers, right? The people who are on the executive team and team two is your functional team. The first time I was at it, I focused too much on team two. And the second time I went in, I realized the success of marketing really depends on my ability to form healthy, productive, two plus two equals five relationships with my peers. If those work, marketing is gonna be set. And so the second time around, I focused much more on that. It's, it's such a, I use that example all the time. I, I, I never knew which, uh, which book it came from, even though I have read that. Uh, maybe it just didn't stick with me. But I talk all the time to people about realizing who your team is. And especially when we're hiring an executive speaking to us being a team as much as, you know, who they're going to oversee. 
you know, I'm wondering how much that strategy is served well. I, I, you know, one of the differences between Service Channel, your first CMO gig, and now New Relic, New Relic's also a much bigger organization from what I know, or at least what LinkedIn's telling me. You know, I, I think almost 10 times as many employees. What has that helped you do in terms of navigating this organization where I imagine you've probably not met 90% of the people? Yeah, well, Randy, remember also that I started um, in COVID. And so I actually have met probably nine people total at the company. <laughs> and those are people that I knew in a prior life that then decided to join the company. I actually never met anybody in person when I joined. So I, you know, I think that when you're at a much smaller organization of, you know, say 300 people, if you don't have those peer relationships as solidified, you can kind of brute force it because you know everybody by name. And also when you're physically in an office, you can just walk over to someone's desk and have a conversation with them. But New Relic is over 2000 people and we can't physically go in and just sit down and say, hey, let's talk this thing through. And so when you're at this scale, you need to have those trusted partnerships so that you can reach out to your CRO and say, hey, you're going to hear this thing from someone on your team. Here's kind of the story, or I'll talk to you about it later. Can you just help me out? And you're like, yep, I got it. No problem. You know, you need those really tight relationships to be able to scale your impact when the organization is larger. That's great advice, Seema. We're going to keep going here, but we're going to take a short break on the marketer's journey. We're going to switch over and chat a little bit about navigating buyers with content right after a break here with Seema Kumar. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. One of the things Seema just hit on that I absolutely can relate to is that we need to realize when we get to that C-level, we're part of more than one team. Of course, we know as the CMO, we've got to bring the marketing strategy, we've got to hire, we've got to unite, but we also have to realize that we're a member of the executive team. We're a member of that senior leadership division that has to guide the company as a whole. And I think as she talks about that role that she's taken on to build those relationships, not just with her primary team, but realizing the executive or leadership team are just as equal in the role of uniting the company. And as the company scales, those relationships will allow your team to be part of the bigger picture. It's great advice and something for you to reflect on whether you're at that stage or whether you're aspiring to get there as a next step. So Seema, an area that you are heavily opinionated on that I respect is content. Uh, you know, you have a feeling that some content cuts it and some doesn't. Now, as a buyer of technology, as an example yourself, what content resonates for you? 
Well, speaking from my own personal experience, Randy, you have to remember that I ascended to becoming a CMO of a public company in just six years. I started my marketing career six years ago. So I've had a lot to learn. There is so much about marketing technology and different segments in the MarTech stack that I had zero understanding of before. And we all know that greater than 80% of the buying cycle happens before you even talk to a sales rep. And that primarily happens through content, right? It can also happen through events or through your personal network, but it's largely through content. And when I would go out and look for content, all I found, or most of what I found, was content that was supposed to be educating me, but it was really a thinly veiled attempt at marketing the vendor's solution. And I found that so incredibly frustrating because here I am trying to learn, you know, what, what is an ABM solution? I don't even know what that is, or what does SEMrush <laughs> do? I, because I was new to marketing, and all of these things were sort of just trying to market their own solution. And so I believe firmly that content that really focuses on truly educating the buyer, and it, it comes across to the buyer as being objective, informative, and based in fact, is going to be much more successful. I, I have this um, experience from my past life when I was at Salesforce, I was marketing an encryption product. Encryption at rest, very boring, I'll acknowledge, it's not the sexiest thing in the world to market. And we partnered with our product management team and we wrote a 21 page white paper on how it worked, including architecture diagrams and the like, limitations. It was one of our top five performing assets for three quarters across the entire business unit at Salesforce. We had much sexier pieces of content, much more fun things, and that one performed the best. And I believe it's because it focused on giving people factual, clear information that enabled them to make a purchase decision. So my first point of view on content is that content needs to be more informative and educational, of educating a buyer, and that content will be far more successful and create a lot of goodwill with the prospect that you're trying to reach. Before we go to the second, I, I want yeah. to dig in there because it's, it's this fine line, especially these days. I mean, we hear this all the time that, you know, product marketing and content marketing are almost converging. And, you know, as many buyers that, you know, want to understand the space, sometimes they want to understand the product. So when you talk about this idea of, of explaining the market and used ABM as an example, which is a great one because there's been a lot of people leaning into ABM and needing to understand what it is as a strategy before they buy technology that helps them with ABM. So where in the buyer journey, if we think about that, do you feel like we need to be more pure? And when can we actually start to bring in the idea of what our product does you know, to solve for that problem? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think top of the funnel, I think, needs to be more pure and more educational. And I think it's bottom of funnel content, maybe some mid funnel that can focus more on the product. But the key is make it clear that you are informing a buyer about your product. So when we had this encryption white paper, it was very clearly about Salesforce platform encryption at rest, right? It had our name on, of the product. But when somebody's out there marketing something or so when somebody creates a piece of content and it's like five ways to choose an ABM solution and it really lines up 100% with their features, that's not pure and that's not bottom of funnel content. So I'm talking about when you're educating a buyer about the industry, about the problems and the impact of those problems, about the trends, about you know how to write an RFP, those things I think would benefit by being more pure. And you create a lot more trust with your buyers when you do that. 
That's great. That's great advice. I, I want to get you back on track though, because you had a second area when it comes to content that bothers you or keeps you up at night. Yeah. The second area is think about the fact that adults learn in different ways. Some people learn through reading, some people learn through videos, some people learn through webinars. And I think too often marketers say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to create a podcast or I'm going to create a video and they put that out there and they don't think about different form factors for different people who learn in different ways. I am a person who prefers to read things really quickly or if it's going to be a video, I want it to be 30, maybe 60 seconds most, I'm not going to watch a 60 second video. And yet tons of marketers are out there creating long form video content. So the second thing that really irks me about content is when people focus just purely like on volume and they're not thinking about like pull through in a way, how do you create content for pull through by the consumer of the content? I think that's such a good point, especially, I mean, in, in to your example, you're in that CMO seat, your role within the buying committee is very different than perhaps that champion who's going to have time to sit down and maybe watch a two minute video versus you need the short digestible asset that gives you an understanding of what you're coming in to approve. How do you start to think in your case and, you know, at, at New Relic, I mean, this is, you know, there, there's different types of buyers, I'm sure that you need to appease. How are you distinguishing the content you serve to that final decision maker versus your champion in some cases? You know, we're actually letting our buyers choose the content themselves. And that might be a little bit controversial, but our end buyer is a very technical audience and they don't want us serving specific things to them. They wanna be able to find what's most useful to them. And it's a little bit of like a self-discovery journey. One of our most impactful pieces of content, if you wanna call it that, is actually our product documentation. Interesting. Not something marketers traditionally think about as being a form of content, but it certainly aligns with my first point about providing pure fact-based information that allows the end buyer to see, hey, does this really do what I think it's gonna do? So. Our end consumers or buyers, if you want to call them that, are developers, site reliability engineers, DevOps professionals, and then sort of more of the executive IT persona. And those are audiences who don't, you know, the traditional thing that we think is they don't like being marketed to. So rather than sort of, you know, trying to navigate them through a journey, we just make everything available to them. So I'll give you an example of one thing we've started doing recently. We have started something that we call NerdLog, and it's called NerdLog, like data nerd, kind of latching onto that brand that we have. And the NerdLog is a weekly update to our entire engineering community of everything new in the product that week. And it's bite-sized. It's just got a few lines of text for each feature, a link to a 30-second video, a link to something you know that was that we did on Twitch. But it's just small bite-sized pieces of information, and we sort of stream it to them each week, if you will, through like through just a regular email, and they can choose to consume whatever they want or not. And that's just an example of how we are serving up all of the information and allowing them to choose what they need in that moment. That's that's a great example, and it you know I think it reflects the reality right now of what all of us are, are experiencing at home, right? You know, we've got Netflix, we watch what we want when we want it. You know, we jump onto a Peloton bike and we have the same type of experience. It's, you know, I can choose a 10 minute ride or a 60 minute ride if I want to do so. And they're not live rides. That's the, th those, those rides don't have to be live, right? I mean, you, you choose a ride that was recorded a week ago, right? But you want that ride now. You didn't want to sign up for it Sunday at 10 a.m. 
Absolutely. I, I, you know, more now than ever, I mean, this is what we're up against is, is that, that need to allow someone to choose their adventure, if you will. You know, I, I wanted to just hit on one very tactical question that you hit on uh, in your second item, you know, of thinking about navigating content. And that's this role of technical content. And I've, I've chatted with another CMO before who I've got a ton of respect with, Dana Rothman. And she talks about, you know, a content center of excellence. So it doesn't matter if it's technical documentation or content marketing or product marketing content, it's all owned together. With your type of buyer, who owns that technical documentation? Is that a marketing ownership piece? Or is that, you know, something where again, as you talked about, you know, team one, team two, you've got to kind of ensure that it's being being mapped properly? Yeah, it's it's more of the latter. It's such a great question because to date our content team in marketing has been focused on um, more of what you would traditionally think of as marketing content. So the blogs and the how-to videos and things like that. And we have a separate documentation team that reports in through product. But what's interesting is that, that the leadership of that team has joined the marketing team Slack channel. They joined my town halls. They're on my email distributions. And they effectively act like they're a part of our team because they know that a large part of what they will end up doing as the, part of their documentation strategy is driving growth for the business. And we are shifting our content team in marketing from being one that creates and publishes content to being one that more creates the framework for how content gets created at the company and the strategy for how it gets created and how it gets measured. And content can come from anywhere. It can come from the docs team. It can come from the developer relations team. It can come from our own developers in-house who use our product. So we are shifting more towards that model, I think, that Dana describes, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, that's that's great guidance, and that's that's truly how you accomplish scale. Which, without a doubt, at you know over two thousand employees at New Relic is is key. Uh, Seema, this has been great. We're going to take one more short break, and we'll be back to talk a little bit about personal journey with Seema Kumar. One area Seema hit on at the end there is the importance of thinking about scaling your organization. And as much as we want to create every content asset for every department or sub-department, it gets to the point where we can't keep up, no matter how much we scale our team or even if we should scale our team to that stage. The key for us is to create a framework for how content should be created. And one of the things that my team did, very similar to Seema's advice, we created, if you will, a guide for creating content, for approaching tone and positioning. We use an app called Lingo for that, which is a small sub point of it, but it's the work that goes into that. It's the way people talk about your solution, the way people talk to your audience, everything from tone, grammar, approach, but really having the right framework for people to relate back to. By doing this, we avoid things like that broken telephone storyline that starts one way and finishes another when someone goes through the buyer journey. Be cognizant of that and figure out if you have the right frameworks for content in your organization. So Seema, I can only imagine that as you've joined a company that's so global in reach with like New Relic, that you've got people in different time zones hitting you all the time with requests. How do you put boundaries 
especially in this current world that we're in, so that you you work within certain time and you disconnect in others? I will tell you, Randy, that I am still struggling with it. So if anyone in your audience is thinking, yeah, how do you do that? You're not alone. Um, it has definitely gotten a lot harder these days where you're not bounded by a commute or what people consider to be traditional working hours. Some of the things that I do, um, I'm a morning person. I meditate in the morning and it's when I work out. And if you check Slack or email before you meditate, guess how successful you're going to be meditating? So I've got a pretty hard and fast rule that I don't look at my work Slack or email before I sit down to meditate. So that's that's a pretty firm boundary for me. Another one is that uh, because I'm a morning person, I am not a night owl. I'm not up very late. So some of the boundaries for me is that I don't do a lot of work late in the evening. I don't do a lot of international calls in the evening, even though they get requested. I might do super low calorie stuff, but I really keep that to a minimum because if I stay up late doing work, then I don't sleep well, and then it just rolls right into the next day. You know, one area where I will say I'm still learning is uh, taking time off. So in this last kind of year and three months of the pandemic, I took only a day or two off here or there, and I kept thinking like, oh, that's enough. I've got my weekends. I'm good. And then just recently, I took a week off, and um, it was the first time I took a full week off at New Relic, and I literally disconnected. I didn't look at email. I didn't look at Slack, and it showed me how incredibly tired and stressed out I had been, and it really was such a good lesson for me that even at my level, even in my role, I still need that time to really disconnect, and the next time I take time off, I'm going to make sure that I truly disconnect. That's great. That's great advice. And that's really hard to do these days. I, I can tell you because we've got nowhere to go. I find in those moments where I'm trying to disconnect and you got your phone there and Slack's probably on your main iPhone or Android screen. It's so easy to go there, but it's great that you be able to, to find those ways you know, to disconnect. And I think, as you said, that in your case, that even starts with the discipline of the morning. So great advice, Seema. And generally, you've given us so much to go off here in terms of your path to becoming CMO, to guiding people with content, uh, you know, a lot of strategy that, as you said, comes from, you know, years of, of learning and then pouncing on those opportunities when given. I can't thank you enough. If you've come across this podcast for the first time, check out some of the other great CMO leaders who have joined us over the last number of years. Have a listen, leave us a review on what you think. This has been The Marketer's Journey, and I thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, at uberflip.com slash podcast, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.